Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, the father to a baby boy, Ethan Sachs. <laughs> Ethan, we're recording on Mother's Day here, and I think it's only appropriate that we wish this format a happy Mother's Day and all the magic playing moms out there a happy Mother's Day as well. Wow, what a what a, I was I was expecting some some ribbing, something companion related. No, we of course get hashtag wholesome content from Ben on Mother's Day morning. Yes, happy Mother's Day to my wife who will never listen to this podcast. <laughs> and happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, all the magic playing moms. You love to see it. All the people that are supporting their husbands, slinging digital cardboard <laughs> while they're while their infants are being taken care of. Yes. You are integral to this process as well. Ben, how how's the format treating you? How is your gumption treating you these days? I found out when we did a draft together that my gumption levels are high, but they're not quite as high as yours. I think everyone <laughs> has varying amounts of gumption, and my gumption levels are on the rise, but they're not quite to Ethan Sachs levels yet. Well, I think what's interesting is I think you actually have gumption, but for a different deck. You know, we sort of teased this thought last week as we were talking about the red-black deck that I had I had discovered and figured out in the format and talking about, well, maybe there's also a way to, to do this for blue-white. And then I think that sort of theory-crafting sentence just sent you on a tear. I think you sort of immediately understood or you had already been toying with these ideas and then put them into words or into practice. Um, and I think it's it's a really interesting process and a really interesting approach to the format that we're going to outline today. Yeah, and I hope a more successful one. I certainly have been having tons more fun playing the games with this drafting strategy, as well as winning more and not winning all the time or whatever. Certainly, I've had my fair share of one threes, two threes still, but trophied a lot more and had positive records a lot more. And even more importantly, for my mental health in the format, just feeling like I get to compete in the games. Well, I think for formats like this that are so high power leveled, you know, later in our show notes, you do make a comparison to Crimson Vow. Um, you know, when we're talking about it being sort of like cube or whatever, this this high powered format, you can sort of feel a bit that you're at the whim of the packs or at the whim of the table. Like, well, if I see powerful cards, I know what to do with them. But what if I don't? And this strategy sort of throws that out the window. It's like, if I see powerful cards, I'll take them if I want to. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if they don't fit into the plan that I'm trying to enact, I'm not going to miss them. Is that fair to say? I'll probably still miss them a little bit because oh I don't have God. as much gumption as you, but never yeah, mind. I think All that right. is the plan generally. We'll be, we'll be talking about gumption in just a little bit. We'll take care of some housekeeping stuff and dive into our new approach for this format. Fun to have a new approach to a format a month deep that we feel like we're, we're kind of figuring it out, noodling around, and that we've we've got a solid take right now. So uh, first things first, we'll talk about the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. Everybody who gives back to the show via the Patreon page gets access to our Discord. It's hopping. It's popping. It's the place to be. I always say it 24-7 limited tech support. People got access to that yesterday and maybe even today if they made day two of the arena qualifier. Next weekend, we have March of the Machine Arena Open number two. You're going to want to be in on that in the community there for questions about your sealed pool. Maybe you're only firing one bullet. Maybe you're only firing two bullets. You want to make the most of them. Get some feedback from like-minded, limited folks in the Discord by posting your deck pick there and your pool and see what other people come, come up with. I've actually been participating in the Discord 
Discord quite a bit more over the past few weeks. You know, I haven't really gotten to stream because I'm taking care of Jonah, but during his naps or whatever, it's been fun to check in on the Discord, especially folks I think have been tagging us a little bit more, which I love to see that. Love waking up to a few deck techs to check in on, um, truly. So if you're if you're already in the Discord... <laughs> if you're not aware, <laughs> Ethan sounds sarcastic about everything he says. I know, yeah. Even, that, even I, when he is being sincere and he was being sincere there. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was realizing as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, oh, this sounds dry also. So let me make sure I'm being clear. I do actually really like waking up to those messages. Um, and so as a result, my Discord has been open to those pages more. Usually I keep it open to sort of like recent episode discussions or whatever, but it's been open to the like, what's the build pages more. And so I've been just diving in and hopping in. And that's a really nice way for me to keep engaged with, you know, some puzzling questions about magic, about, you know, draft pools, cuts and all that good stuff. And also to keep engaged with our community. So the Discord is awesome. Other great rewards that you get access to via the Patreon are awesome, like access to our show notes, access to the episode a day in advance, and all the way up the reward tiers, you get access to monthly coaching sessions with me or Ben. So if any or all of that sounds of interest to you, head on over to the Patreon page. And of course, we want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, we are welcoming Anthony, Carlos, Joseph, Matt, John, Ian, Greg, Amius, Patrick, Coleman, and David. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you by CoolStuffInc.com, where they've got cool stuff in stock. That cool stuff right now for us limited players, March of the Machine sealed product. To be clear, not to play sealed with. <laughs> this format to and sealed clear. is a little dicey, a little, little bit of a... The bomb sweepstakes or or the preening champion sweepstakes. But if you get that sealed product, you can draft with it with friends down the road. And this draft format is excellent. I think certainly an all timer. I don't think it is the goat for me, but this format has been excellent. And if you pick up a box of sealed product now, maybe a year or two down the road, get some friends together and draft some March of the Machine, relive the good times with the preening champions. <laughs> and whatever you're doing at CoolStuffInc.com, please use checkout code LOL to get 5% off anything in the store. We've got this new partnership. It's not really new anymore. We're about a month deep with Cool Stuff Inc. But we really want to show them that we can drive our listenership to their website. So if you're making digital purchases and you don't have a go-to store, please make that go-to store CoolStuffInc.com. All right. Talk to me, Ben. This is this is sort of your uh, your start. And I agree with everything. You know, usually if you're going to write write up a couple pages of show notes, I'll go through and I'll maybe I'll highlight some stuff or red underline some stuff. Oh, we got to talk about this. This. I'm kind. I'm kind of with you, bud. I feel like you, you've got it down. I like it. It's good. We should have brought this to the listeners in week one or two instead of week four. But I mean, we're not always going to crack it wide open. Yeah. And now that this is cracking it wide open, this is just an approach to a format that I think offers a lot of diverse approaches to potentially be successful with. This is the one I'm enjoying the most. So I finally feel comfortable. And we talked about it. I'm winning more. Have a plan. And I think just. The having of a plan is a big thing for me because one of my biggest level ups since we started the podcast was when Ryan Sachs was on and talked about drafting with preferences. I had never really thought about where I wanted to end up before. I was just always trying to do the Ben S like, let's read signals, let's draft the hard way, let's end up in the open deck. But you have a lot of agency over where you end up in a draft from the first pick without forcing, I think, or without totally forcing you can you can hedge the odds in your favor that you're going to end up in a certain deck and I have been doing that a lot in most formats and that's how I like to draft now but I wasn't doing that in this format because I thought the power level was so high and the good cards mattered so much that I just needed to find the open lane so that I had the chance of getting past good rares so that I could win with those good rares and I was just letting draft pods push me around and around and around 
And last week, when I was saying out loud that I had only gotten into Blue White Nights once, that that was crazy, right? Like, I needed to be trying to get into Blue White Nights. From the beginning of the format, I thought that was one of the best decks, and I had drafted it once. There's no way that was correct. And so I just went on a tear, and I decided... I'm going to start drafting these good low-to-the-ground decks. And I saw you getting a lot of pushback when you were streaming and and drafting, as you often do, um, and sort of figuring this out, or maybe you had figured it out sort of internally, but trying to put into words what you were doing. And it's very easy to just be like, oh, so you're forcing this deck. That's not what you're doing, right? You're not just going in and saying, you know, hell or high water, I'm going to draft blue-white. There's a lot more nuance to it, I think. Yeah, I think I'm taking the best cards out of the pack that aren't green (laughs) really don't want to be green. And then as soon as I get decision points, I'm trying to steer towards red, black or blue, white first. But I think first and foremost for this plan for me is don't be green. I think the green decks are just super clunky and don't really let you leverage play skill a lot, at least the way I was drafting and building them. The green decks I was drafting were, you know, three, four, five color green, you know, using Blighted Burgeoning as you're fixing, having a lot of high-powered rares, and then drawing and casting those rares, which is like you have to draw all those cards in the right order. Your mana has to work. Your opponent has to not tempo you out. The turn you stick your good rare. There's just a lot of variables that you don't have control over. Here's another thing that green decks really struggle with. It's double spelling and, and sort of by proxy is they don't convoke. And so you're really doing like single spell, single spell, single spell turns. And that gets out-tempoed and out-classed. Like it, it, those turns where your opponent goes like, stick a threat, and now I have blockers, so you can't attack, pass, pass back, and you get to cast Meeting of Minds for quote-unquote one mana. It just feels like it's impossible to get ahead if you're not also competing on a similar axis. Yes, and it's tough for green decks to do that. And to be clear, this is not us saying don't draft green. Like I think, I think green is super draftable in the format. I think you can win with green. I think these green decks that do play a lot of good cards are very powerful. I just really don't want to do it right now because I'm, I'm tired of losing to the lower, more streamlined decks. And so I just have joined that team. Like I want to be drafting those decks and I'm trying really hard to get into those decks. And I also think, you know, we're going to talk about this a little later in the show notes, but green suffers from playing on the best of one ladder a little bit because you are going to play against those blue black tempo decks. You're going to play against those blue white tempo decks and green decks have such a hard time winning against good versions of those decks. Those are the decks where Afar's dispersal is the most punishing, you know, when you're really trying to go like, yeah, six, stuck my four mana creature, my five mana creature, deal with this, and your opponent can. And even if it's just temporarily, even if it's just with dispersal or temporal cleansing, it still is a huge blow. Huge blow, for sure. So the plan is steer towards red, black, and blue, white first. And I think you lean more towards red, black. I lean a little more towards blue, white, but that's not even true. I I love a good red, black deck. And I've actually started towards the latter half of this week, really trying to get into blue, white. You know, we'll be looking at a draft log. Hopefully we'll have time to look at a draft log at the end of all this, um, where I do end up in a blue, white deck. So those two first, and then I think blue, black, because I I don't want to close that off as an option to myself, but it has been a lot harder these days for me to get into blue black, mostly because blue has been pretty darn cut. And you should say then, well, how can you get into blue white if blue is really cut? Because white is really open, similar to like the epiphany you had with red black sacrifice Mm -hmm. that 
you know, red was super underdrafted. So you could get the black and then you're going to wheel the good red and the good red black gold cards. Because blue is so contested, you can get deep into white and then, you know, make maybe you spend a pack one pick two on a late preening champion or pack one pick three on a late preening champion. And then maybe you wheel some blue white gold cards because blue is so contested. Like you can sort of do that same thing with blue white. Yeah, exactly. And then there are sort of offshoots of these decks, which I started to branch out to because I will say even, you know, post the episode releasing may maybe we had our first actual impact on the metagame. Red black wasn't forcible every draft. Those invasion of Asgols weren't wheeling. Juries weren't wheeling, you know. Um, and so sometimes I had to pivot off of those decks. And my favorite pivots off of red black are when I feel like red is cut moving into black white, similarly because of what you said of like white being open a lot. Or if I'm feeling like black is cut, I can pivot into blue red because a lot of the the cards that blue red wants are unique to that deck. And you can also maybe snap up a few of the really good blue cards. So there's there's this nice core of, for me, four decks that's red, black, blue, white, black, white, and blue, red that I feel like I can navigate into no matter what. And like, hey, if I win the lottery and blue black is open at my table, great, I'm going to do that. But like, otherwise, I'm thrilled with one of those four decks. Yes, I agree. And the last non green color pair is red white, which I have not drafted at all yet. But I've played against some really good red white decks recently, I think partially because these strategies are a little bit undervalued at the moment. Yeah. So your deck, whatever you draft here, whichever color pair needs to be really lean and it needs to have great interaction. And what this lets you do is just get to play magic, which I had been missing so much (laughs) in this format. I'd just been feeling a complete lack of agency. And maybe this avoiding green thing is a mental fallacy just because I don't like the way the green decks lose and I should still be willing to draft green and just lose without really getting to play a game of magic. But I'm I'm tired of it. So I'm, I'm taking a break from green. And these decks let you compete. They let you go one drop, two drop, three drop, interaction, interaction, keep your opponent off balance and win. And it gives you a great chance against decks that have some bombs. I've beaten more bombs this past week drafting this style of deck than I have the entire format combined. Yeah, and I don't want to discount green or shortcut green in terms of you know, what was it, week two? And I was like, red, black, this draft was bad. Red, black is bad. And then last week I was like, red, black is all I want to draft. I hope that next week or in two weeks, one of us gets to come to the show and be like, I figured it out. Here's how you draft green or here's what what green does best. Here's its good color pair, whatever. I think that's still possible. The the card I want to throw out as like the card that I most undervalue, I think, because in my head, I'm like, you know, I don't want to play combat tricks when I'm not assertive. That's just sort of like one of my my blanket rules for myself. Arachnoid adaptation is excellent. <laughs> it's, it's such a beating. Excellent. And it's such a beating. I, I, I've already said this on the show before, but it's such a beating in that I can, you can read your opponent for it. The single green stop is happening on Arena. You know that they're giving you that tell, and there's still not a dang thing you can do about it. You know, like... You're just going to have to one for one with that trick at some point. Well, unless you have instant speed interaction and then you blow your opponent out, you can do something about it if you've got the the deadly dispersals or the Afaras dispersals of the world. Your Afaras dispersal for sure can do it on attacks. I'm just saying like the thought of like they're trading one mana for your four mana for your derision or whatever. And I've also gotten to stacks war where my opponent has multiple adaptations to protect it from damage spells or whatever. Oof. Anyway, so I think that's like the key to if there's a green deck that that isn't an oops all good cards blighted burgeoning deck, I think adaptations definitely 
part of that puzzle. Well, and I think playing against green decks a lot, the card I want to see least on the other side of the battlefield is a turn to herbology instructor. Yes. The one, the one G one three gain three life. That is pretty critical, I think, to surviving and stabilizing with the green decks. Yeah, that's a great point. So if you're drafting this style of deck, these red, black, these blue, white decks, black, white, blue, red, whatever you want to say, these low to the ground interactive decks, you need to avoid decks with lower power cards that don't pressure well at all costs. Because if you end up in one of these archetypes and you're not good at pressuring, you're just going to lose the mid game every single time. So these these aggro decks have a pretty high density of lower powered cards comparative to, I think, the overall power of the format, right? Mm -hmm. But the combined power of having a clear strategy and really having a proactive plan to end the game quickly makes up for some individually lower powered cards. But here's the disaster scenario. And this is where I (laughs) keep finding myself in the format prior to this. And even when I do draft these decks, sometimes you really want to try to avoid ending up on turns like five through nine with your opponent stable and your deck not being full of great cards or your hand not being full of great cards because so many of the decks are overflowing with just banger after banger after banger thanks to the soft draft pods a little bit and just people drafting a higher powered format and some some of the packs aren't going to break your way and sometimes you're not going to have that busted deck so whether or not you're trying to draft these interactive decks just try to avoid the mid game without great cards like <laughs> that is what i'm trying to steer away from with every ounce of my life i feel like there's like some infomercial in here of like has this ever happened to you it's turn five (laughs) and your opponent has four cards in hand to your one and they're still at 17 you're gonna lose that game and they've got an invasion of amonkhet on the battlefield (laughs) right has this ever happened to you and it has i've had that same feeling where i'm like oh no what like i might as well concede but i shouldn't because this game still has like six turns in it but there's no way I'm winning. Right. That's where this format is kind of weird in that losing feels so bad because of <laughs> how you lose. Yeah. You're still at 17, 18, but you just know the game is over. And yes. I think if you don't draft these lean interactive decks, right? Like, let's say you listen to this episode and you're like, great, Ethan and Ben told me about this thing. I'm going to go draft this deck. If you don't draft it right, you're going to end up in this turn five through nine situation where you just have no chance a lot. And it's going to feel really bad. And then you're going to think we're terrible and we betrayed you. But know that it's very important that you have to be very proactive and interactive so that you can keep your opponent off balance and you know how you're going to punch through the last points of damage. And we'll make sure to chat about some key cards for these four decks uh, towards the end of the episode. Yeah. And I think there are longer game plans available to you in the format. Again, just to shout out green and to make sure we're not excluding green. If you like drafting green or you like playing with all these rares and you want to try to draft the three, four, five color soup, you can be the deck at the top of the food chain and steer towards that stuff. I haven't had much luck with that. And I've lost to aggro decks getting underneath me when I've been those green decks. And the other risk you run if you're drafting green, I think that you don't really run the risk of drafting these lower to the ground decks. Sometimes you draft a green deck that looks great and it's got a lot of rares and your opponent still has yet better rares than you do. Or you play against a blue black deck that has better rares and better interaction than you do. And there's just you thought you were the biggest fish. There's always a bigger fish. That's what I found out. That's why that's why I'm staying away from these decks that are playing to the later game. The other thing that I want to say in terms of comparing it to a, a whatever, a bomb forward format like Crimson Vow is that in Crimson Vow, I would let rares 
warp my pick orders pretty large. You know, you start off with a dread feast demon in that format. You know, I'm going to really try hard to stick to black. Now, black was also one of the better colors in that format, so that wasn't hard to do. In this format, if you're ending up in green for powerful green cards or, you know, ending up in green for oops, all good cards, multicolor soup. The problem with those is that these four decks that we're talking about will whip around the table and pass you by and often look better than what you end up with. If you end up with two to three really good cards and then a deck that's like, hope I find one of those good cards. And then you watch these marshals of Zalfir's you know, whip around the table, you're going to feel bad. And I was sort of letting those decks pass me by and thought that that was okay because of the power level of the cards I had. I no longer think that is okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Great. Well, we're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll be back with why we want to enact this plan. Spring has really sprung. With the weather turning and it being light out later, the last thing I want to do on a weeknight is be stuck in a hot kitchen for hours making dinner. Well, lucky for you, there's Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit delivered straight to your door. You'll eat well and be able to spend more time outside. Much like a draft of March of the Machine, Factor has so many good, fresh, never-frozen options to pack one, pick one. There's dietitian approved calorie-conscious meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. There's Protein Plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. There's keto for folks looking to limit their carb intake, vegan and vegetarian options, and much more. What's keto? It's like a companion stipulation for your diet. As long as, as long as your deck doesn't contain pasta, you can have as much fat and protein as you'd like. I'll be putting pasta in my main deck. Thank you very much. Well, whatever your preferences are, whatever you want to steer towards in your meal draft, Factor has you covered. Head to factormeals.com slash LOL40 and use code LOL40 to get 40% off your first box. That's code LOL40 at factormeals.com slash LOL40 to get 40% off your first box. All right, so you touched on this briefly already, Ben, but why this plan? Why is this good for climbing the best of one ladder on Arena? I haven't really put a ton of thought up into this concept before, but I, I do think after thinking about it a lot, with this format especially, the best of one pods and ranked play lead you to different incentives than they, they do in a normal draft pod, and not even where you're playing in pod necessarily, just more the strength of draft pods. And I, I guess maybe probably in pod play is wrapped up in there too, but I don't want to be a, a an in pod truther because I love the leagues. I, I, I'm not lobbying for pod play. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it, it does give you some different incentives. So specifically related to green, what I was talking about, I think green is good in this format. And you can draft good green decks that are quite powerful. And I did that on day one of the open and I felt, you know, fine about my deck. My deck was a little loose, but it could compete in best of three because there was no hand smoother. And because there were higher skilled drafters in the pods, I think, which led to less powerful decks overall that you're playing in in ranked play at the top of the ladder you're consistently playing against the most juiced possible versions of whatever archetypes there are you're playing against the best blue black decks you're playing against the best black red decks you just are consistently facing whatever the archetype can do you're facing the best version of that so often and i think green decks just match up so poorly against 
the best versions of a lot of the streamlined archetypes. So where are you sort of seeing, if we're talking about the latter, where are you seeing like colors shake out? Because, you know, last week we were like, well, red, black, you can always get into. I'm not sure if you can always get into that. Is blue still feeling overdrafted to you? Yeah. In the best of one cues, blue still feels overdrafted to me. Sometimes red has been cut recently, which has been weird. I think, honestly, the most open color this past week has been white in the majority of my draft pods. Yeah, this is the first week, like before this week, I would have been like, oh, I don't want to touch black white with a 10 foot pole. But now I get it. And I've been part of that is because white has felt so open. Yeah. And so back to this ladder idea, I also think the ladder rewards you learning how to draft a deck inside and out and how to Mm. consistently end up there as much as possible. What you're always trying to do, I think, is identify the best deck in a given week that is the most open and trying to do it as much as possible, right? Like your screenshot of red, black, or I feel like people who are at the top of the ladder who are, you know, top 10 mythic or whatever, a lot of times their screenshots of their 17 lands is blue, white over and over and over or blue, mm-hmm. black over and over and over, right? And there's no way in a, a high skilled draft pod that you would be able to do that over and over and over without sacrificing serious equity. But because of the way arena works, you can kind of do that and learning how to do that if you do it well, can really up your win rate, I think. And that's kind of what we're diving into here in this episode is how should you think about that? How to do that kind of a a user's manual, if you were. So sort of a user's manual, I think people will say like, oh, so they did an episode on how to force. I don't think so. It's not forcing to me, right? It's giving yourself the best chance to end up in the archetype you want to end up in without sacrificing too much other power if you really feel like you're pushed off it. Right. I, I, I parentheses, Ben, I agree. That was a that was a podcast <laughs> co-host. I was teeing you up there a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think like on face value, it's gonna sound like we're saying, here are the decks we think you should force. That's not what we're saying. But it, this is sort of hearkening back to drafting with preferences and understanding these decks, what makes them tick, and that drafting them or prioritizing certain cards, picking certain cards out of weaker packs, whatever, is going to let you end up there a higher percentage of the time. Yeah, 100%. So if we're talking about mom-specific stuff, the green being bad at the top of the ladder certainly has been true in my experience. I'm sure that you can have success with green if you want to go that route. I'm not having success with it. So for now... I'm not doing it. And then blue still overdrafted. Black, weirdly, is still pretty open. I would say other than yeah. white, black has been the color, even even a little more than red that I've been able to get into the most. And a small sample size, whatever. I've probably done 15 to 20 drafts this past week. I've been playing on my phone a lot. That <laughs> <Bad> boy. <laughs> NBA finals, just, you know, I got an NBA game on, got magic on my phone. The content, it's too much, too much stimulation. You love to see it, truly. <laughs> Uh, but I think, you know, we've talked about this idea of having a lean deck and really being able to interact with your opponents, all that stuff, super important. And I thought for some reason you've talked about Val. I thought that didn't work in this format because I thought the power level of the format was too high, but it's no different than cube, right? I mean, if you're in cube and you're drafting mono red, your cards are way worse than a, a mid range deck or a control deck or a reanimator deck, like just lower power level overall. But the fact that your mono red deck is planning to close the game out in five turns makes your deck powerful, right? So you can draft uh, not mono red in this format, or maybe you can, but you can draft these hyper aggressive red black or hyper aggressive blue white decks that really are trying to close the game out fast. And you put a lot of pressure on decks that are not ready for that. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. 
And I, I think it, it does work. That's that's mostly what I want to get out there. I think previously our narrative had been power level, power level, power level. And this is more deck power level or the plan of your deck power level than it is making sure you end up with individually great cards. And for your aggro deck to be successful, you do have to have the individually great aggressive cards. You're just also a little more likely to see those cards a little later, I think. It's power level versus consistency. And we're not only talking about consistency in terms of gameplay, but for me, it's consistency in the draft. It's that I can consistently end up with good versions of these decks, whereas there do, there does have to be a bit of not only do you see the bombs for the power level forward decks, not only do you have to see those bombs, but you also have to see a deck that supports you playing those bombs, whether it's on color commons and uncommons to go along with those rares or fixing or whatever. Yes, I completely agree. And I think that's where I was going wrong with deck construction a little bit in the format is that I was so wrapped up in I got to get the power level of all my cards up that all of my cards didn't necessarily work together towards a cohesive plan. They were all good cards, but I didn't have a good overall strategy, if that makes sense. And I think I'm really valuing having a good overall strategy now. And I think the biggest realization I've had with these decks, once I get all my cards on the same plan, is how they relate to battles. Because we did a lot of talking about battles in the first couple weeks of this format, you know, about how whether you need to play offense or whether you need to play defense against the battles or how you can make your opponent's battles worse. If you are these streamlined decks and you're ahead, maybe sometimes you're going to have your own battles that are on plan. Maybe you're not going to have battles at all. It doesn't really matter to me. I was pretty pro battles being broken. I think the good battles are great, and I think the other battles are not so good. But when your opponents, the battles do still have a huge effect on the format, because when your opponent sticks a good battle, like you're in trouble, like you are forced to do something about that. And if you're these proactive decks, if you're ahead, your opponent's battles are always worse no matter what, because if you're far enough ahead, like if they want to turn their creature sideways to attack their battle, sure, great. Like, sign me up. Please tap your own creature. You end up defending battles through having a great offense. Like there's this chess concept that the best defense is a good offense. I've always heard that when I've played chess with my brothers. That's what they would always say. I don't know if that's actually a chess thing, but it is <laughs> It's true, true in my world. And I think that's what's happening for me here with these decks. That's the hidden benefit that I hadn't actually seen because I hadn't been playing these low to the ground streamlined decks much is that your opponent's battles are worse without you really having to try too hard for them to be worse. Yeah, I think there's nothing more, I don't know, demoralizing isn't the right word, but I don't, I haven't felt worse in games than when my opponent sticks a battle, I'm not pressuring them effectively enough, and I also know I can't defend the battle profitably. That also feels like one of those games where I'm like, I'm going to lose this, but it's going to take a while. You know, when you're like, what am I going to do in terms of trading creatures off to stop this battle from flipping? Once it flips, I'm going to be, you know, just buried in value, etc. Yeah, that's the turn five through nine no man's land. So I know you love sports analogies. When I played tennis in high school, like we had a, a spot of the court called no man's land. Like, so you're back at the baseline, like you're serving, you're rallying back at the baseline with ground strokes or you're getting your butt to the net and like you're serving and volleying and you're, you know, you're playing up close to the net. No man's land is like the space between the baseline and the service line. Like you don't want to live there. And I think that's kind of true for the format. Like you really want to get the game wrapped up in the first six turns, or you want to be packing enough firepower that you can compete past that no man's land window of like turns five through nine, six through 10, five through 10, whatever you want to say. Cause that's the time where, 
if you're if you're lost in those turns of the game, that's when your opponent plays a bomb and the game's over. Mm-hmm. And I think you just need to know how to get through that time, whether it's not letting the game get to that point or how you're going to get through that point of the game. And right now, I've just been trying not to let the game get to that point. I love this too, because it sort of takes some agency back from one of the higher variance parts of the games, which is like, oops, my opponent played this busted card and I, I walked, there was nothing I could do. I hate bombs. And you know, I love that discourse. That is sarcasm, <laughs> folks. I hate that discourse. But the thing that I love about this strategy is like, when that happens to you, I think you can take a, a step back you know, whatever, you know, know, throw something at your computer screen, throw your keyboard out the window, whatever, (laughs) then take a breath, take a step back and go, maybe there's something wrong with my deck. And if there's something wrong with my deck, maybe there's something wrong with the draft, etc. I think you can really work backwards of like, sure, maybe sometimes it was just, ugh, they got to play their bomb on curve, or they found their bomb before mine, whatever. That does happen in this game. But I think there are some some inherent flaws potentially revealed when you do get to that no man's land. Yes, that's what has been better for me about losing as well. Like when I lose that way, I'm like, yeah, I deserve this. I ended up on (laughs) turns six, seven, and eight without significant enough pressure on my opponent. And maybe I needed a mulligan. Maybe I needed a whatever. But rather than feeling like, oh, God, another rare. Like now I feel like, yep, that's on me. I shouldn't have let the game get to this point, which is a much better feeling. And again, that's where I went back to maybe this is a mental flaw for me for green decks. And maybe just losing in no man's land is the cost of doing business for green decks. And you're like, well, yep, I lost in no man's land because I didn't have my bombs or whatever. I just have not enjoyed losing that way nearly as much. I want to talk about mulligans just real quick because you mentioned them and we haven't chatted about them on the show. Um, I had such a like a boomerang effect of coming off of one, seeing hands that didn't have two drops and feeling like I can actually keep this <laughs> wrong, wrong in a sense, right? Because you, I just like I would snap keep hands and then I'd be like, oh, no, my first play is Eyes of Gataxius. <laughs> I'm in big trouble. So I definitely have like forced myself to sure you do that sort of you know knee jerk check for lands and spells whatever does it seem appropriate but you really need to pause and map out like what do these first four turns look like with this hand and am i affecting the board because i've had i've had the opportunity to keep hands where i've been like oh wait i definitely should have mulliganed yeah well and does your does your opening hand get the game over before no man's land happens yes because when you're drafting these low to the ground lean interactive decks if you're not treating the format like Phyrexia all be one, you're doing it wrong. Like, so when I've been drafting these decks, that's the other thing. I've been mulliganing very aggressively, almost like Phyrexia all be one, so that I know that I can get the game over with or have a fighting chance before, you know, the haymakers start coming down. Yeah, for sure. So I've been mulliganing a lot more this week. All right. So we've talked a lot about these decks, what we think they give you. How do you end up in these decks as often as possible? I mean, it's just one word, right? Hashtag gumption, baby. It's gumption. I mean, it is. To, like, It's so funny. Like, What started off as kind of a meme, it is sort of true. Like, You do have to have a little bit of faith, trust the process, whatever sort of misty woo-woo thing you want to put on it. <laughs> you do have to have a little bit of, I know this is going to happen, even though it looks like it's not happening right now. Yes. And I think... In addition to gumption, you need to have a really clear picture of what the finished product is going to look like, and especially what the key pieces for that finished product are, right? 
if I'm drafting a white deck and I have no aerial boosts at the end of that, it is a disaster, right? Because that's a key way to, you know, leverage free mana, get ahead and also close the game out, right? Yeah. And it's it's less for me about knowing what pieces I'm seeing, but knowing what pieces I'm not seeing. Because I feel like the the danger for gumption is that it does turn into forcing. It turns into hashtag forcing, which is, again, <laughs> not what we're advocating. But we are advocating for, like, trust that Swordsworn Cavaliers mean you can get into this deck or whatever. And Swordsworn Cavalier is probably, you know, ahead of the, the curve or ahead of the power level in terms of key pieces for that deck. But that if you're if you're like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be in red, black, and this card didn't wheel, or I haven't seen beat sticks, I haven't seen marauding dread ships. Sometimes that just means, hey, trust the process. They're coming in pack three. And sometimes it means, no, there was a beat stick in my pack one, and it didn't wheel. That should be putting up some some red flares for you. You know, you got to be reading those signals as well. Yes, some potentially abandoned ship signals. Correct. So your early picks matter a lot more when you're trying to have hashtag gumption when you're drafting this way, because, you know, if you first pick a black card, it is harder for you to have gumption to get into blue white. If you first pick a white card, it's harder for you to have gumption to get into red black. So picks one through five matter way more when you're trying to steer into a deck than they do if you're just trying to like read what's open, right? Mm-hmm. If you can just take the best card out of the first five packs, which is, again, is a fine strategy in this format. We're not knocking that at all. That's just not what we're doing right now when we're drafting. So I, I put a lot of thought into each card I'm picking, picks one through five, into where is this card pushing me and what mm-hmm. other types of cards am I going to be incentivized to pick as a result? Because when you do take, you know, black card and then blue card, and then you're trying to decide between a red card and a white card next, it's tough. Like you start getting pulled in different directions. So if you're trying to do this, you ideally, I mean, sometimes the drafts aren't always going to let you, but you want to try to be pulled in as few directions as possible early in the draft. And I think, again, it'll, it'll sound like forcing, but there is a subtle difference, I think, here in terms of planting a flag for a deck in that, you know, again, I'm going to keep referencing Swordsworn Cavalier. That's the one on a white three one uh, has first strike as long as another knight enter the battlefield and under your control this turn. Um, getting that card early, you know, I think that's that's maybe even kind of down the white. I don't know what where it is in, in terms of people's pick orders for white in terms of 17 lands, common rankings, whatever. I think that sorry, Ben, I, I mentioned data. <laughs> It's okay. I just winced a little bit. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, that uh, I don't know where where that lands. But you know, taking it, it doesn't have to be Marshall of Zalfir that is getting you into blue white. You know, and I think part of the benefit of these kinds of decks is that if key cards or or signpost cards for them aren't opened in pack one, you can still start to carve out that lane and that shell for yourself. And as long as those cards do get opened in pack two or pack three, not only will they make their way to you, but you can often be like, I'm going to take preening champ out of this pack. And I know that Marshall of Zalfir is likely to wheel type stuff. Yeah, that one I would be a little less confident in. But if white's open, so it's Cavalier. And I mean, certainly you can sometimes know like by later in the pack. Yes. Packs two, packs three, you know, nobody else is in this deck. I'm probably going to wheel this card. That's why I said pack two, pack three. 
I suppose so. I didn't say pack one, Ben. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll do do a better job listening. I was scanning the old show notes again. (laughs) A classic. A classic (laughs) Wernie move. Okay. What's up next, bud? So I think you're only really willing to hedge for very high power level cards. Like not just Bs. Like normally you should spec on a B. But if I've got a good start towards one of these decks and I've got a clear plan going, I'm way less willing to hedge on that B, but I am still hedging for, you know, A's, A minuses, because the rares are a driving force in this format. So I I don't want to have everyone just pass all the rares. But for example, I had a draft recently where I was heavy white, like an on track for blue white soldiers. I think you were on on stream or maybe on the line. Uh I think you were just maybe watching the stream. So I was heavy white, great start to an aggressive blue white deck. And I had like a preening champ and maybe one other blue card. And pack two, I opened Glissa, which is the the black green rare, the three five that poops out two twos. And I had a choice between that or another good aggressive card for blue white. I don't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. And everyone wanted me to take the Glissa and like, well, you can just play pair white with black or green and then splash Glissa. Yeah, I could, but there's a huge cost there, right? Yes. All of this time I've spent carving out white aggressive cards all my white aggressive cards are going to get worse because they all want the blue white soldier synergy. I'm going to be splashing, which is going to make my mana worse. I'm going to have mana problems with the Glissa. I'm way more likely to end up in no man's land in a deck like that that's splashing Glissa. So there's some real cost there. And I have been leaning away from specking on cards like that that are going to, if I've got a good start to one of these decks, require me to peel away from a focus strategy, if that makes sense. But you also run the risk of that's why this is so hard to do. And it's so hard to teach. You also run the risk of if you don't do this right, leaving way too much power on the table that you could have had in your deck. It's it's not an easy skill to learn. I think the thing that I want to highlight about this example you're giving, which I think is a really good example of, you know, being deep into a white aggressive deck, seeing the Glissa, because what what chat was suggesting Ben do is definitely possible. You take Glissa, pair white with green or black and get fixing. It's early enough in the draft where he can check those boxes in terms of get enough fixing where the Glissa is not a, a big impact to his mana, figure out black or green is open and pair it with the white. He doesn't have to abandon his white cards. So on paper, in terms of like colored pips, he will be fine, right? He'll be able to play Glissa consistently in that deck. What will not be fine, why he keeps referencing No Man's Land, is the deck will not have a cohesive plan. It will be white aggressive cards paired with maybe even some green aggressive cards. And then what? You're in a white green aggro deck and you're splashing Glissa? Why are you splashing in your aggro deck? You shouldn't be doing that. Or you're what? Now you're in white black soup splashing the Glissa. Fine, but then are all of your cards just sort of filler and not cohesive? That undercuts, not only is that bad in terms of the fillerish cards you're going to play, but that also undercuts the ceiling of the power of the white cards he set himself up to have from pack one. Boom. I've got another sports analogy for you. I love it. So the Lakers, this is the NBA playoffs right now. The Lakers were atrocious early in the season because they had Russell Westbrook, which was a piece that didn't fit with LeBron and AD. Like Russell Westbrook is super ball heavy and LeBron needs shooters to play around him so that he can drive and kick it out to three point shooters. And so at the trade deadline, they traded Westbrook and got a bunch of, you know, kind of tier two players that are good players, not like to the level of Russell Westbrook, but that can shoot. And those pieces complement LeBron, and now the Lakers are poised to maybe win an NBA championship. In this analogy, 
the Glissa is Russell Westbrook. Like it just doesn't belong with all these other white and blue cards that you had. You've got to put the right pieces together or, or at least give strong consideration to that when you're trying to do these strategies. I hate to say it, but I did like that sports analogy. Ooh, really? Yeah, I did like that. That was Love pretty it. good. <laughs> yes. Boom. So we finally chat about these these four decks uh, in, in particular? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. So all four of these decks come together without the help of rares. Do rares boost them up? For sure. But you get good interaction, good cheap plays, synergy, and powerful cards at uncommon that no other deck should want. That is the key here. Because what that lets you do is often get two picks out of early packs. You can take Volcanic Spite and Wheel Invasion of Asgol or whatever you can take. As I said, maybe you get to take Preening Champ and Wheel a Marshal of Zalfir. Those are huge boosts of power level for these decks that don't require you to have, you know, a Glissa in them. So we're talking about, for me, these four decks are red, black, blue, white, black, white, and blue, red. So we'll start by chatting about Rakdos. We talked about this last week um, in a bit more detail. We may have had our first effect on the metagame because I have found this deck harder to get into, which is why we've got some offshoots of it in terms of uh, black, white, and blue, red that we'll talk about. The version that I like of this deck, and we got some feedback in the Discord that other people have been playing it without Beatstick, but the version of the deck I like the most does utilize Beatstick as, it does multiple things, right? It's a repeatable way to make treasures. The treasures help you ramp. The treasures are sacrifice fodder for your sacrifice outlets. And it's no joke, the Menace, the plus one plus O and Menace really does help pressure your opponents. Well, it puts your opponents in a spot where they either have to have interaction, removal, that they're spending on your cheap, dorky creature Correct. that is now wearing a beat stick. Like, it forces them to use removal on a creature they don't want to use removal on or almost race. Because, like, leaving two creatures back to stop this thing with Menace is so hard. And then maybe you're attacking with something else that they want to block also. It just makes it very difficult for your opponent to be in a blocking role against Beamtown B-Tick and come out the other end profitably. Yeah, I mean, what, what are they going to do? Fire off removal on your Icker Drinker or your, your Rouse Reinforcement <laughs> I've had people token? Do it before. I've had I mean, people, people use the red deal three on my Icker Drinker. Well, and that's why I sort of roll my eyes a lot when I was initially talking about this deck, when it was, whether it was on stream or in some coaching sessions, and people were like, well, would you just hope they don't have a forest dispersal? I'm like, I don't care if they have a forest dispersal, because if I'm equipping this to my Icker drinker and then they want to disperse it, great. That's not that big of a hit. You know, the forest dispersals, as we talked about, it's a blowout when it's against your four mana green creature. But against my derpy little low drops, I'll be able to rebuild that board in no time. Yes. And I think the other thing about Rakdos is that you get, speaking of low drops, cards like Icker Drinker, you get cards like Rowl's Reinforcements. These cards that are important for the deck to function and curve out go later, right? You yeah. wheel Icker Drinkers, not always, but sometimes you consistently wheel Rowl's Reinforcements. You consistently wheel, you know, good red and black two drops. The the Dreg. Dreg Recycler. The Dreg Recycler wheels all the time. That's the one black two two that can let you sacrifice something to drain and gain. That's the most important piece for the deck at common, I think. And the other thing that this color pair gets is tons, tons of removal in these colors and your choice of just so many uncommons that only this deck wants. Not only the signpost cards, but you know, you get Furnace Reigns, the Steel Creature card, you get Scornblade Berserkers late, the 01 with backup uh, that sacks to draw a card. Um, so I, I still really like this deck. It's still my favorite deck to get into. 
Can I force it 10 drafts in a row like I could last weekend? Definitely not. Well, and how do you get into it, right? You take good black cards, ideally, mm-hmm. maybe good red cards sometimes yeah. in the first couple picks. And then, you know, picks four through eight, if you see a black, red, gold card, you can lock it in and plant your flag there. Maybe you see the active treason variant and you take that and you lock it in expecting to wheel some dreg recyclers. But you take good cards that are aggressive in black or red. And then when you see something that says, ah, Rakdos is probably open, pull the trigger and then just start drafting the deck. Right. And, and don't get pushed off it at that point. Like there's, there's comes a point where you pull the trigger and then you're going to have to have gumption after you pull the trigger. And the gumption comes with like what Ben is talking about, that kind of start where you pull the trigger early and then don't get scared pick seven. And you <laughs> That's go, what like, happens to me. When you go like, oh, there's no good cards for red, black. Like, I'm like, there are no good cards for anybody. This pack isn't good. Or like, don't be like, oh, man, there's a an Eyes of Gataxias pick eight. What is that still doing here? Like, yeah, that's the best card in the pack. Who cares? You have a good deck. You're on track to draft a good deck. Just have a little gumption. Yeah, that and that's where gumption comes in. And that's where you also you run the danger of forcing. If you're not careful, because there are still some times where maybe you are supposed to pivot off of it, but they're fewer and far between than I would have thought going into the format. I think once you have a great start to a deck and you pull the trigger, if you're going to end up in a streamlined deck, that's a good place to be in the format. Well, and I think it's also key to note that we're not saying blue black is on this list, right? We're not saying, hey, the best deck in the format, you just got to have gumption for it. (laughs) Right. You can't do this with the tier one deck in the format. Yes. All right, that takes you on to Azorius, which I think lets you play the blue cards. And frequently, my Azorius decks have been heavy white with six or seven blue cards. But those good cards, you know, I picked, pick two, pick three, and I get to play them instead of getting pushed completely off of them, which I think is the, the biggest benefit of Azorius. And it also lets you leverage the tempo oriented nature of a lot of blue spells better even than the blue black decks. Right. Blue black, I think like I see temporal cleansings in a lot of blue black decks and I don't love it there. You know, when I see the like hashtag not correct pick 10 temporal cleansing, I'm like, maybe like tech cleansing isn't that great as like your quote unquote removal spell, right? But cleansing is great when you go, you know, play uh whatever the the cavalry, the four mana, make two two twos, and then with remaining two mana, get to cleansing a thing and attack with other like that is just such a tempo beating. Your Afara's dispersal feels so good. So these blue interactive spells, I think, get bumped up in these assertive Azorius decks. Yeah, that four mana make two two twos, the Knight of the New Coalition, the two two Vigi that brings a two two Vigi token along with it. That is my biggest riser up this last yeah. week. That card is outstanding well, for four mana. Well, and it's an it's a perfect example of a card that like you see that pick ten and it's kind of innocuous. When you're in this deck, that's one of the rewards, right? You're like, oh, sick, I get this card, and you want to be aware of not filling up your four drop slot because that card is so good in this deck. Yeah, that and Bola Slinger, I think my two biggest risers this week. Yeah. So like Preening Champion and Marshall of Zalfir, I think are likely the best cards for Streamline Knights that other decks may snap up, may signal people the deck is open. Preening Champion is just going to be good in any blue deck. But like Marshall has that sort of knock against people might go, ah, yes, blue white knights. But you don't you don't need that card for the deck to function. And you get so many other, much like red black, you get so many other like uncommons that no other deck should want. You get Zalfrin Lancer, the three mana three three. When a knight comes into play, it gets plus minus one and Vigi until end of turn. You get Quende. 
Pride of Femrith. Those are just a, a few cards that other decks aren't interested in. And Quende is just busted with the deck's like best card, which is Swordsworn Cavalier, which in these decks just reads as a two mana three one first strike. Yes, it's the best way to be aggressive for sure. And you had messaged me about Quende, Swordsworn Cavalier plus Aerial Aerial Boost. I mean, that's just GG. Like, I just was able to be like, what are you at with my opponents with Quende, Cavalier, and Boost? And just Tenu? Like, it's disgusting. Tenu in the air. Tenu in the air. And that this is, again, this is a deck where Aerial Boost and, to a lesser extent, Angelic Intervention, these combat tricks are also leveraged the best. And so yeah. it just, like, not only exists at commons, but makes a lot of the commons the best that they can be. Right. So I think Azorius is one of the best places to pivot if you start blue and you feel like uh, blue isn't happening and you're seeing white. Like you better believe if I start with a couple blue cards and then see a Swordsworn Cavalier snapping up that Swordsworn Cavalier trying to get into blue white, heavy white with a little bit of blue. And I think that is Azorius's best feature is that it lets you play the blue cards that you pick early to a lot of success. Agreed. Uh, talking about Orzov, black-white, I have found pivoting from a red-black start to this deck to be pretty easy. As red dries up, you can pivot into, hey, well, white seems to be the open color. And I haven't really drafted this deck very much until this week, but I've liked it quite a bit. I feel like I kind of get it because I don't think it's actually, it's, at least the versions I've been drafting haven't been aggressive because I don't think that that's what this deck does the best. It leans on Incubate Synergies. Sculpted Perfection, as, as the signpost on common, I think is a great reason to get into the deck. And it is definitely a card that if you've sort of carved this deck out, it'll wheel in pack two or pack three. Like people aren't jumping ship for Sculpted Perfection later. And so you can get this sort of, you know, oops, all Incubate, oops, all Phyrexians kind of deck. Tiller Flesh is probably the biggest riser up for me in this deck um, from this week. This is the four mana, two for it, uncommon. Whenever you target one or more creatures with a spell, you incubate two. Um, this plus cut short or this in a black white shell and black white again gets to have a lot of interaction whether that's with cut short as a convoke spell a convoke removal spell um, whether it's with aerial boost angelic intervention um, plus blacks removal suite Tillura of Flesh can really get out of hand pretty quickly. Attentive Sky Warden, the three mana 2 2 flyer that flips incubates when it connects. Scroll Shift to blink your incubate enchantments. Cut short, as I said. These are all pretty underrated cards currently and play very well in this deck. So, question for you, because I have not played Orzov too much success lately, but I have been trying to build it a little more proactively. Like, I've been trying to keep it streamlined, like I have Rakdos and Azorius the couple times I've played it. Do you feel like you end up in the no man's land problem at all? Or do you think you have the power to compete there? I think you have the power to compete. You can run the risk of like you need some way to have actual card advantage. That's the one way that I found myself having trouble. So I often will splash uh, for something. I feel like Corruption of Tawashi is a really good splash because it plays with the incubate space and gives you a source of card advantage. So something like that, that can give you a little bit because I don't feel like this deck can play at least the versions that I have been drafting because I think Cut Short is so good in the deck and so underrated generally that I think the the versions of Orzov that I've been drafting have not been proactive, but don't end up in no man's land. I think partially because they defend battles so well, like you just like if if your opponent is doing anything in the space of trying to get you know battles to flip, like you just leave battles stranded with this deck so often. 
Right. So this deck, it's kind of coming together for me now. So this deck is leveraging cut short. Yes. The same, the same way that other decks like the blue white is leveraging late swordsworn cavaliers or that Rakdos yes. is leveraging the late black red gold cards. You're you're a black white deck that is on the the later game end of the spectrum. You have cut shorts as your premier removal that you know that you can likely wheel. Yeah, because the, the white decks, most of the white decks are aggressive, so can't take advantage of the power level of cut short. And then you need to make sure that you have some card advantage as well so you don't get just out carded by the blue decks. Right. That's the, that's the biggest thing that I feel like if I'm getting into Orzhov, I'm like, got to make sure I find something that I that lets me get ahead on resources or at least try and keep pace resource wise with the blue decks. Okay. That makes sense. I'm in. Cool. Last one we've got here is, is it artifacts? Talk to me about is it artifacts? I have not done this yet. I've hardly played is it at all, but I know you've had some good success with it. So the version of this deck that I like and that I backdoor into most often is not convoke. And I think convoke, I'm I'm, I'm air quoting quite a bit here. <laughs> I know we're doing an, an audio medium here, but I'm doing air quotes with convoke because I think convoke is just sort of the good cards with convoke are good and the bad cards with convoke aren't good. And like, you're not trying to do any sort of convoke deck. I don't think, I don't even know the card's name. The five mana, two, three makes two one ones whenever you can. Joyful Storm Sculptor? I think that card is terrible, personally. <laughs> I don't want to play it ever. Uh, and so I don't think like Convoke as an archetype is a thing, but I do think is it Artifact is a thing. And as a pivot from re- my, you know, if I'm going into the draft and trying to get into red black, this is a great pivot from red black if I feel like black is drying up. And one of the real ways that I get into it is Invasion of Kaladesh. And I know that I think this is like a pretty like I don't people don't like this card, whatever. It's blue red makes a one one thopter uh, for defense battle flips into a legendary. It is legendary vehicle. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a Sarkin like a man who has legend ruled himself. I have legend ruled myself, but but also I, I say it's legendary because I think people then think that you can't play multiples of them or whatever. It's like, no, because if you have an uncontested flipped one, you're winning the game because it's a star four flying vehicle with crew one and its power is equal to the number of artifacts you control. So this card is so good. I think it's very underrated. You get it, you know, whatever. If I'm starting red, black, and I get a late invasion of Kaladesh, I'm definitely going to speculate on that. And maybe, much like blue-white, I'm only going to get a handful of blue cards for the deck. But those blue cards are just going to be such bangers that I can be a base red deck with these blue cards. And what the invasion of Kaladesh plays super well with is beat stick, right? Beamtown beat stick, pooping out treasures. That's a stream of artifacts for you. And marauding dreadship makes two artifacts, right? So it's not only the four, one vehicle artifact, but the two incubate token, remember incubate tokens are also artifacts and omen hawker shines here because it pays for your equip cost for your beat stick, or it pays for your incubate tokens to flip or whatever. It's also paying for your convoke spells. So you get a lot of, and then, you know, some draft pods, Omen Hawker is going to get snapped up, but Omen Hawker still wheels a fair amount of the time. So these are a handful of, you know, Ka- Invasion of Kaladesh, Beatstick, Dreadship, Omen Hawker, a handful of very underrated cards generally that I think play well together. And you only need to grab a few of them to sort of know I'm at a table that underrates this strategy and I'm going to be able to get a good deck. Mm, you're kind of selling me on Is It Artifacts? I was skeptical and your passion is winning me over. <laughs> I, I do. I like that Ben's like, I'm going to let you talk about this deck <laughs> and we'll we'll see what I have to say at the end of all of this. That's I'm, nice. I'm kind of I'm, I'm buying into hype. I'm bought in more on Orzov than I did. Is it artifacts? But I want to try them both. I think I don't think I think is it artifacts is because even when the pieces come together, it's still not like 
as good as Rakdos or as good as Azorius, but sometimes you do have to do it. Sometimes that's the deck for your seat, but it's less about gumption because I'm not going into the draft. Right, Rakdos and Azorius are my primary goals currently. Yes, and, I agree. And, and then Orzov and Izzet Artifacts are my offshoots. They're my my escape plans. Yes, I like Orzov as an escape plan better, but I'm in I'm into the Izzet Artifacts if I get pushed off of uh, if I start red black and I get pushed off black. Should we uh should we try a little draft log here to to show folks what we're doing? Please, let's do. Okay, so here we go. Pack one, pick one. You see the following cards as options. No great commons. I would say probably the best one is Vanquish the Weak. Two and a black for the instant destroy target creature with power three or less. Moving on to the uncommons, we have one banger in Norn's Inquisitor. One and a white for a one-one. It's not only it's got two good types, Phyrexian Knight. What a card. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you incubate two. And whenever a permanent you control transforms into a Phyrexian, you put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And then we got two rares. One is from the Multiverse Legends. It's Thalia, Guardian of Thraben. One on a white, two, one human soldier with first strike and non-creature spells cost one more to cast. And Rankle and Torbrin, one black, black, red, red for the three, four, flying first strike haste. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player or battle, you choose any number. Each player creates a treasure token. Each player sacrifices a creature. Or if a source would deal damage to a player or battle this turn, it deals that much damage plus two instead. Gumption, take Rankle and Torbrin, Rakdos? No. <laughs> I mean, like, you're hoping to get a pick six Rankle and Torbrin after you've had Gumption. Yes. A black, black, red, red card is not not the Gumption start you want. Norn's Inquisitor is probably at the power level of Rankle and Torbrin and costs two mana and is one color. You better believe I'm snapping up Norn's Inquisitor here. And I have to imagine there are some number of folks out there that are looking at Norn's Inquisitor versus Thalia and thinking that they would take Thalia. What do you have to say to those people? Wrong. <laughs> I mean, uh, in all seriousness, I do think it is wrong. I mean, Norn's Inquisitor is a knight. We've established that Blue White is not soldiers. Thalia is a soldier. Yes, it's unfortunate. Uh, and, and Thalia also makes a lot of your cheap interactive tricks harder for you to cast and double spell with, which is a really important piece of the Blue White deck pulling ahead. Norn's Inquisitor is just more powerful and more synergistic in the format. Pack one, pick two. We've got a number of uh, better commons. I would say chief among them is Final Flourish, one in a black for the instant. Uh, it has kicker, sack an artifact or a creature. Target creature gets minus two, minus two until end of turn. Or if it was kicked, gets minus six, minus six until end of turn instead. If we want to go down the knight's path, there is a knight of the new coalition. Three and a white, two, two, Vigi brings along a two, two, Vigi token with it. Looking at the uncommons, we got two that are catching my eye. One is Skyclave Aerialist, one in a blue for a two, one Merfolk Scout with flying. Uh, transforms for four and a Phyrexian green mana into a 2-4 flyer. And when it flips, you get to look at the top card of your library. If it's land, you can put it onto the battlefield. And if not, you can put it into your hand. And there's a seal from existence. One white white for an enchantment with ward three. When ETBs exile target non-land permanent and opponent controls until seal from existence leaves the battlefield. Yeah, this is pretty quickly for me between aerialist and seal. I could see arguments for either and you could hand me either of them and it wouldn't matter to me too much. This is more a question of how hard do you want to try to get into blue to me than it is which pick is correct. I think if you like blue and you want to try to get into blue, I think it's certainly reasonable to take Skyclay Burialist here. What Seal gives you is it lets you stay white. So it's going to give you more power in the draft to exercise agency to figure out what you want to pair with white. I, I just think it's going to keep you a little more streamlined. Like this is what kind of what I was talking about where you want to avoid if you're trying to do this strategy, 
you want to avoid getting pulled into multiple different directions early in the draft. Because if you end up after this pick with Inquisitor and Aerialist, sure, if blue white's open, you feel great. But then all of a sudden, if you have to choose between, I don't know what a good example is, but like another good white card or another good blue card that's not quite as good as the white card, like you just end up in spots where you have to pivot off Aerialist more often while also making tougher decisions. So I think I would take Seal from Existence here, which is I see what you selected also. But you could hand me either card, and I think it just changes how you draft a little bit. I don't think there's a right or a wrong pick here. Before this past week, and I think before thinking about hashtag gumption, I would have taken Aerialist because I think... So if this pack one pick one, I take Aerialist. I think Aerialist is the best card in this pack. But I'm already thinking... like. Again, it's it's a shift from I'm drafting the hard way, whatever cards, if I give up Norns Inquisitor, I'm okay with it. I'm less okay with that now. And I'm thinking about, okay, if I take Aerialist and I end up with in a deck that's blue-white that plays both, Aerialist is good, but it's not like integral to blue-white knights yes, in my mind. I agree. So I like taking Seal because it keeps me open. And really, the only other white deck that I want to get into currently is white-black because I I don't like white-green or white-red. I don't feel like I understand them as much as I do the other two decks. And so I take the slight hidden power level, take the white removal spell, um, and leave myself just a little bit more open. Yes, I like that. All right, pack one, pick three. What a gift. A preening champion, pick three. How is this still in the pack? Yeah, I mean, because packs are stacked. So sometimes yeah. you're going to get a pick three preening champion, which is great. And you could be thinking, well, why me? I could have had a merfolk scout. Like, And this is really the fail case, right? Or not a merfolk scout, a skyclave aerialist. You could be thinking, well, I could have had aerialist and champ and be on track to draft a blue deck. Yeah, you could have. But like, you still feel fine yeah, with feel seal great. from existence and preening champion here. That's, I think, the real reason to take seal to me like if blue flows great you're not going to miss aerialist that much and if blues cut you would much rather have seal from existence yeah there's really nothing to discuss here in the preening champ pick there's no good white card there's a core halberd the you know plus one plus one equipment i'm not taking that um and there's what a marauding dreadship and invasion of all growth i mean there's just nothing compares to the champ here pick three now pick four we have some interesting decisions. So there is a Swordsworn Cavalier. It's the one on a white 3 one. It has first strike as long as another knight ETB'd this turn. Um, there's an Alabaster Host Intercessor. Five and a white for the 3-4 with plain cycling two. When it ETBs, exile target creature and opponent controls until Intercessor leaves the battlefield. And a card that I think is quite good in blue-white is Tetsuko Umazawa Fugitive. This is the 1-3 creatures you control with power or toughness one or less can't be blocked. This is a this is a tough pick. I'm curious to to hear your thoughts on this one. This is, and I think if you have the Skyclave Aerialist plus Preening Champ, you're probably taking Tetsuko here to solidify Correct. yourself into blue, so that you can be base blue and then pair. Maybe you pair Norns Inquisitor with your blue. Maybe you find some other color to pair with your blue. Since we took Seal from existence, and this is how I like. I, I mean, I don't care which card you take. Pick two just changes how you draft. I think because you have the two white cards here, all of a sudden Swordsworn Cavalier starts to look a lot better than Tetsuko to me because you solidify yourself in three white cards. Cavalier is three powered versus Tetsuko being one powered, which is super important for not yeah. ending up in no man's land in these blue white decks. So I think I would take Swordsworn Cavalier here over Tetsuko. And if you're planning to be blue white, Swordsworn Cavalier might still be better than Tetsuko. Right. Anyway, it's kind of weird because you really do want to get the game over with, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I took the Cavalier as well, but I thought it was close. And I, I like that. I think just purely on 
Now I have three white cards and one blue card versus if you take Tetsuko here, you have two white cards, two blue cards. You're kind of locking into blue-white, which is probably where you want to end up anyway, but you're locking in and giving yourself less flexibility, um, and I don't think I want to do that just yet. So I take the Cavalier. Then pick five, we're presented with a ton of options, another Swordsworn Cavalier, a Sigiled Sentinel, two and a white, two, two, backup one, and Vigilance, Cut Short, which I actually don't think belongs in these decks very often. That's the three mana Convoke, Destroy Target, Planeswalker that was activated this turn, or Tapped Creature. And then the Uncommons, there's another Tetsuko and a Zalfrin Lancer, the three mana, three, three, whenever another knight ETBs under your control, it gets plus and plus one and gains Vigilance until end of turn. Yeah, I think for me, this is, again, between Cavalier and probably Zalfir and Lancer, I think Tetsuko less in consideration since we passed the last the last one. So we only still have one blue card here. So I think I just want to take another white card. And I think I would take Swordsworn Cavalier as another primo two drop. Yeah, I wanted to pick your brain about this pick in particular, because do you ever think about what card plants your flag a little bit more or what card like signals people less. I know we say that we shouldn't, you know, don't care about the signals you're sending, but sometimes when you're carving out a lane, it's important. Do you think that like passing Zalfrin Lancer might be more likely to put someone into Knights than passing Cavalier? I mean, it's hard for you to not pass a white signal with this pack, no matter what. I don't. I think Cavalier is a bigger signal. You you have to have the three powered two drops. Well, I know you, <laughs> I know we I think, know that. I, I think most people, but okay. if you're, if you're talking about sending signals, uh-huh. you're talking about a good drafter, right? So like if the person to your left, isn't a good drafter, it doesn't matter what you pass. They're going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. And if they're a good drafter, they're going to see Swordsworn Cavalier as a better signal than Zalfir and Lancer because they're going to know how important the two drops are. And yeah, so I, I would take the Cavalier here regardless. I think it's just the better card. Okay, I agree it's a better, better card. I did not take it at the time I took the Lancer because I leveled myself with this signal mumbo jumbo. But uh, yeah, so I think I should have taken the Cavalier. But getting deeper into white aggro, pick six, get a Knight of the New Coalition, which is awesome. And then I'm not locking into blue-white. Like pick seven... I take a Furia, Judge of Valor. Maybe I end up in black-white. Pick eight, I get a Shauna, Sisei's Legacy. Hey, maybe I'm going to end up in green-white. Like It's not until middle of pack two that I decide, and it's getting a pick five Marshal of Zalfir and a pick seven Marshal of Zalfir. Then I'm like, okay. And the deck ends up looking like what Ben's talking about. It's mostly white cards, a couple Marshals, a Preening Champ, you know, a couple transform Phyrexians. And then it's just like double Cavalier, triple Zalfrin Lancer, double Knight of the New Coalition. It's it's just off to the races. Well, and I think if we talk about the locking in point, back to pack one, pick five with the mm. Cavalier and the Zalfrin Lancer, let's assume you had taken the Swordsworn Cavalier there or that yes. I, I did take that. Once I have Inquisitor, Cavalier, Cavalier, Seal from Existence, there is nothing that's pushing me off a white aggressive deck. I, I might pair one of the different colors with it. I'm not moving off that. That right. like, That's where the gumption comes in because that's such a great start to a good aggressive white deck with a great plan. And it's the style of deck I want to draft right now. This is an example where you start you have this start to go back to your example from before pack two, pick one, you get Glissa. You're really hoping to not take Glissa out of that pack. Yes. And, and even... And even to the point where I don't want to take a flyer on Glissa, because then I run the risk of losing yeah. gumption. Like, yes. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, because then all of a sudden you see a pack without a white card and you take a green card and you're like, well, I have this Glissa. Maybe I do that. And then before you know it, you're doing that. 
<laughs> drafting a worse deck. Like I've definitely, definitely done that before. But also to be clear, like we don't want you to leave rares on the table. Are the other draft log that we thought about taking a look at? You first picked Chrome Host Seed Shark, which is one of the best cards in the set, moved off of it, and then still figured out a way to splash it and put it in your deck, right? So we're not right. advocating for just wildly abandoning power. This is this is a delicate balancing process, but hopefully we've illustrated how and when and where and why to do this. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the coming week, you know, if you when you listen to this episode, you have more questions, hit us up on Twitter, email us, hit us up on the Discord. Like this is, I think, a tough concept for us to teach, to outline. And so if there's ways for us to clarify in future episodes, we're all for it. For sure. And I think if you take one thing away from the episode, for me, I would want you to take away whatever side of the spectrum you're on, you need to be trying to avoid no man's land. Like that that turns five through 10, where you don't have a clear idea of where the game's going or how it's going to end. That's the disaster spot. All right. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to CoolStuffInc.com for sponsoring this podcast. As Ben said, if you're looking for a place online to buy any magic product, please make it Cool Stuff Inc. We're sending you their way. We want them to know that it's a good partnership for them and for us. Um, and you get 5% off of anything you buy over there if you use code LOL at checkout. You can find all of our additional content on our website, lordsoflimited.com. That's where you get links to our streams. Ben's at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. I someday again may be at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Our YouTube channel is going to have some more content coming to it this week. Um, and you can tweet at the podcast as well at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, maybe about gumption or no man's land shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of lords of limited thanks everybody see you later